Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the University of Massachusetts Medical School's Office of Communications. Welcome to the Voices of UMass Med. Our guest today is Alan Jacobson, PhD, professor, chair of the Department of Microbiology and Physiological Systems. He's also one of more than 40 faculty members in the new Rare Diseases Research Institute at UMass Medical School. And we should add a sometimes self-described expert in nonsense, I've heard. Uh, that could be. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. That nonsense reference will probably become a little bit clearer throughout the conversation. We're happy to have the chance to talk to you. So some listening to this may know that you have been here at UMass a long time. When did you first set foot on campus? September 1973. So now we're talking 45 years. Yeah. And um, paint a picture for us. What was the campus like at that time? Uh, everything was in the Shaw Building. The, uh, the thing we now call the Medical School Building was under construction still. And I like to joke that there were 20 people in the Shaw Building, total people, including janitors, secretaries, <laughs> and faculty. Uh, and uh, it was a, a pioneering world. Is we that were, what drew you? It was pretty sparse at that time. It was, it, I'd say maybe uh, 100 people, not including students. And uh, we were there taking a chance, thinking that this could be uh, a place that uh, got to be great if we all pitched in and did it right. And uh, turns out uh, that's what happened. So you did it right. So what, what yeah. did that mean? What was it that you were hoping to find? Well, it's, it, let me put it in, in context for you. So, you know, how did I end up here? So. Uh, Donald Tipper, the chair, the founding chair of the microbiology department, uh, had uh, come to visit me while I was at MIT to, uh, to try to talk me into coming to his new department, his new medical school. And I was doing the traditional thing of going around and looking at uh, jobs in, in more well-known schools. And I had a, a terrific offer from, a, we'll just call it a a well-known Midwest mm -hmm. uh, medical school. And, and uh, there was one thing uh, that really troubled me, and that was that uh, roughly half of my potential new colleagues were people I knew I wouldn't get along with. Uh, it made me wonder whether I, you know, I could really get tenure in this place. And, and you can say, well, why wouldn't I get along with uh, these people. Well, they were just full of themselves. It troubled me a lot. And, and so when I thought about uh, Tipper's uh, interest in, in trying to get me here, I thought about the possibility of uh, being in on the ground floor and creating something new. And the, the kind of conversations that I would have with Tipper and other people involved were, you know, there are lots of smart people on the planet, and some of them are nice. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's find them. Let's, find let's work them. with exactly. them. Exactly. Yeah. So why not build an institution where uh, it's really fun uh, to interact with all your colleagues, not some of them? It seems like that sensibility has stuck with the medical school to this day. That's, it, it is remarkable that you, you can understand where at the beginning, it might have been something that was really important, but wouldn't have been sustained. 
but you know, made everybody feel good. Uh, and uh, it's it's nice to to enjoy your whole day at work without feeling uncomfortable. There, in other institutions that we'd all been at, you, you'd be on a floor and and avoid certain people or certain ends of the <laughs> hallway and things like that. And and we've uh, we've done a great job here of building a faculty that uh, feels like family. And while you've been having fun at work all day, all those years, you've actually been doing a lot of good work too in terms of advancing the science. So I don't want to make you blush. Um, but you recently had the honor of a lifetime in your election to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. I mean, that's a really big distinction that puts you in elite company. Former President Barack Obama was part of your class, right? That's correct. So how did you find out? Uh, I was uh, at a meeting uh, in New York and I got an email which, uh, which, which told me that I had been elected. And I, I was sitting in a, in a room that was listening to someone giving a lecture. And so it was, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, and, and it was the kind of thing where I wanted to tell somebody, but I couldn't because, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I was in the middle of a lecture hall listening to, to someone give a talk. What is that moment like? What, what did, did it cause you to reflect at all? Yeah, uh, it, uh, the, the general kind of feeling I have when something good happens is that I think of myself as fortunate. Uh, fortunate to have been in the right place at the right time, to have had uh, students and colleagues who have been exceptionally uh, stimulatory and, and you know, and creating an environment that, that, you know, that helps to make good things happen. Uh, and, and yeah, you know, it's, it is nice. Uh, in particular, this, uh, this academy was, was founded by John Adams, I believe. So, you know, that's, that's, that's good company. <laughs> Pretty good lineage. Yeah, right. <laughs> so your work focuses on mutations in genes that are called nonsense mutations. Right. Do I have that right? So for non-scientists, can you explain what they are? So mutations are uh, uh, events that damage DNA in a way that inactivates the function of one or more genes. And uh, there are different classes of mutations. Uh, there are missense mutations, nonsense mutations, deletion mutations, and frame shift mutations. And, and so what's, what's a nonsense mutation? And to, to, to help you with that, you need to understand uh, what the nature of a gene is. The information in a single gene is uh, made up of a linear sequence of bases from a particular starting point to a particular stopping point. And the starting point has a special signal in, in DNA uh, that is copied into a molecule called messenger RNA. And the starting point is called the initiation site and the stopping point is called the termination site. A nonsense mutation uh, is something that puts that stopping point at a premature site, uh, let's say in the middle of that information. And so although you need all the information from start to normal stop, you don't get it because you have a premature stop. So you have a fragment of the genetic information that you need, and, and that essentially renders 
the the gene useless in terms of its function. So you have this series itself. of ACs, Gs, and Ts, and the stop sign is in the wrong place, essentially. That's exactly right. And so what does that uh, then cause downstream in terms of the damage to the cell, or how is that related to disease in particular? So by virtue of having only a fragment of the genetic information, you get only a fragment of the ultimate protein. And that means that it can't take uh, can't undertake its normal function uh, it's it's incapable because it's lacking parts of the protein that are required let's say for catalysis so uh, you now have a situation where a key protein is missing um, or uh, present in very low abundance in the cell and, and that's deleterious. That, that and ends that could up, be the cause of that can be fatal. any number of diseases. It's uh, by our latest count, several thousand uh, inherited disorders are attributable to nonsense mutations. So if you, if you look at all rare diseases, there are, there are thousands of them. Mm -hmm. And they can occur because you've, uh, because the, the entire gene has been deleted, that's a deletion mutation, or there's just a, uh, a single small amino acid uh, change that has arisen from a single base change, or you can have one of these premature stops. And so there are lots of ways to, to inactivate a gene. This uh, nonsense mutation is one of them. And if you look at all the mutations that cause all the rare diseases on the planet, Somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of all of those diseases are attributable to nonsense mutations. Wow. So let's talk about the significance of this new rare disease research institute here at UMass Medical School. Um, why is now a good time to be doing this? And I'm wondering, you know, rare diseases, I think by definition, affect fewer than 200,000 people in the United Correct. States each. Um, is why is this a good place for us to put our efforts to try to cure and reverse or, or find treatments for some of these diseases? Well, I, I think that uh, rare diseases have uh, attracted a lot of attention for a long time uh, as, um, as examples of how things can go wrong when there's a, a mutation in DNA. But because there are so few patients, it's been difficult to, to, to work on these diseases. You know, there might be two in, in a city or, or mm -hmm. 10 in a whole state. And therefore, and it makes it hard to make the case for funding, too. That's, that's right. Uh, but what's happened in the last uh, 15 or 20 years is that new methodologies uh, for uh, addressing these diseases, uh, gene therapy, RNAi, uh, small mole molecule uh, screening uh, have have made it possible to address these diseases in in a serious way. Uh, that and and more cooperation uh, amongst uh, um, agencies that are interested in in seeing that these diseases uh, get get help. Uh, and something that that probably hasn't been noticed all that well is um, family-based organizations, uh, patient advocacy organizations, 
for many of these diseases have been formed by concerned uh, mm -hmm. parents, and they have been fabulous at, at promoting attention and funding uh, for all of these diseases. So you, you're a basic scientist, and I do want to talk more about kind of what that means and why it's important, but when you, some of your work has led you to work on some of these rare diseases. For instance, Duchenne muscular dystrophy is one I know that you're involved in. I'm wondering if your approach to the science changes when you have those families and those patients in the back of your mind. You're going to make me cry. It's really interesting. I, yeah. I, I spent uh, the first 30 or so years of my career uh, thinking that all I wanted to do was understand how gene expression worked. How does the information in DNA get translated and used by cells? How is that regulated? How is it turned on? How is it turned off? And then uh, in, in 1998, uh, a, a former postdoc and I, Stuart Peltz, uh, started a company uh, with the goal of trying to address uh, nonsense mutations by uh, small molecule uh, drugs. And, and although uh, we were committed to, to developing drugs, my mind was still pretty much that of a, of a basic scientist, mm -hmm. trying to understand mechanistically how things would work. But after a couple of years, uh, we had preliminary results which indicated that we were actually helping patients. And the first time I heard the first results, I literally cried. Really? And uh, I, I, it, it was transformational in the sense that uh, I had had what I would call um, indifference to this approach at first. But once once I finally felt like I could do some good, uh, it was a, a, a transformational moment. I actually uh, was overcome with uh, both excitement and, and humility. Once we started meeting uh, affected children and affected families and, and seeing um, what kinds of uh, effects we had on them, how important it was, and how desperate their lives were for anything that could help them. Really just for hope, yes, as much as anything, exactly, right? Exactly right, and, and that's what we were providing. So it, it was quite the change. You're listening to Voices of UMass Med, featuring the people, ideas and advances of the University of Massachusetts Medical School. It's really powerful to hear you reflect on that moment. Um, it, but let's get back to this idea of basic science because getting those positive results that will one day help patients and their families isn't possible really without the basic understandings of how things work. And it's surprising to me sometimes, as much as we think we know today, there's still so many unanswered questions. Is that? Uh, yeah, that's, it, it's, uh, it's scary sometimes that, that the general public thinks we know enough to solve every disease. We know 
a, a lot. In the last uh, 75 years, we've made you know, great leaps in understanding things. But there's so much missing that we just are clueless about. And this is where basic science comes in. You know, basic science is curiosity-driven. You know, how, uh, how do you explain how function X works in a cell? What is this structure in a cell? And, and what happens if it's missing? Things, things like that. And so, you know, as you as you work in a lab and lead a team and do experiments, I wonder how how often are you surprised by what you learn? If you had to put a number to it, how often do you go into an experiment expecting one thing, and what you get out the other end is like a head scratcher? Uh, often, very often. often. Yeah. It, you know, more than uh, more than once a month. And right. is that good? Uh, I love it. So I I call myself a data junkie. Meaning it is, it is so exciting to get the results of an experiment uh, even if the results are wrong. Rel I mean, not wrong, that I was wrong in my prediction of what the results were. You know, we, we have this thing in the lab where uh, I like to say to people, well, how do you think that would come out? <laughs> 25 cents on this result or this result? Uh -huh. who's, who's in which betting camp? You know, so we, we are at that level of, of uncertainty where even though, you know, we've been working on a problem for years, uh, we, when we take it to the next step, there's, there's uncertainty about how something will come out. And I, I love those kinds of surprises. You know, so it's certainly sometimes they can be, you know, a, a technicality that, that you, know, you, you missed. But often, you know, biology is saying not so fast. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, you uh, you thought you knew what was going on, but you're wrong. There's something more complicated here, and you need to dig deeper. Well, I guess that's what I'm wondering. You know, su surprise doesn't necessarily equal failure. It just exactly. It just means all right. Let's think about why this might be. Maybe we need to go in another direction. That's a, that's exactly right. So, um, it, the concept of serendipity. I know that's you consider that to be vital in science, and I want you to tell us a little bit about why. Well, it's exactly what you were just uh, alluding to. We, uh, we would work on something that uh, seemed to uh, make sense uh, to us, and then you get this, this observation that's inexplicable in terms of what you think you know. All right? And then you, you have the option of saying, uh, uh, it's just a mistake, or it's boring, or something like that. But uh, but if you are inquisitive, uh, you can also say, "Huh, I wonder what that means. Mm -hmm. Is there more to this? Let's dig deeper. Let's make a right turn and do some experiments which tell tell us whether or not this is something that's significant." And it happens over and over and over. It helps a lot to have read or to have gone to a meeting or to have met some colleagues who are studying things that you once thought were unrelated uh, to, to what you were doing. Mm -hmm. and, and if you can make that connection, uh, often uh, it becomes really clear that this is uh, a connection that, that really means something. Yeah. In, in, uh, in our work, uh, when we were first studying nonsense mutations, 
we were trying to understand um, perhaps why it is that not only do they, they block the synthesis of the protein, uh, but they accelerate the degradation of the messenger RNA template. And uh, I, I met someone at a meeting who had mutants uh, that were completely unrelated to, to what uh, he thought we were studying and vice versa. And it turned out that, that his mutations had, a, had characteristics that could explain what we were seeing. His graduate student came to my lab did some experiments with my postdoc, and we uncovered this, this pathway that we ended up calling nonsense-mediated mRNA decay. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and, and, and that's been uh, a, a fruitful uh, opportunity for us for a long time. So what's your earliest memory of being interested in science or wanting to understand how things worked? So, so I've had a... Uh, a lifelong curiosity in how things work. This memory that I have was one that uh, goes back to when I was about six years old. And uh, in context here, you have to understand that my dad was really handy and he was always fixing things around the house and the car and stuff like that. And I loved following him around and he made me a toolbox. And in that toolbox he put some tools that were mine and, and, and so um, I, I helped him as he fixed things. Now one day, uh, this is now somewhere around six years old, my parents had company. And uh, everyone was in the living room, the dining room, you know, eating, drinking, talking, schmoozing. And I didn't want to have anything to do with them. And so I went into my room, uh, just looking for something to do. And I had this clock in my room, and I said, somehow I decided this was a good time to understand how this clock worked. <laughs> so I got out my toolbox, and I started taking this clock apart, and I got off the back, started just taking bits and pieces apart, and then all of a sudden I put my screwdriver someplace where I shouldn't have, and I almost got electrocuted <laughs> because I didn't know then that you're supposed to unplug it. Unplug things. it for yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, that wasn't in, in clock 101. That's, that's a good so, lesson. And, and I screamed. And then, of course, everybody that was in the house came running into my room, and there was this whole thing about what, if, what are you doing? What have you done? And, and you'd think that, that this would have suppressed. Uh, my interest. It only made me more interested, <laughs> just so a little more careful. What did you take apart after the clock? <laughs> uh, well, I, after the clock, I would do things like bicycles and, uh, and, and other mechanical things that, that I share with my friends. We would make uh, what we called soapbox derby race cars, and we would take them down hills, and we, we actually developed actual steering mechanisms. So uh, just, you know, any, anything that came across us. But that was uh, the spark. Was, yeah, that was, a, yeah, good, good work. <laughs> <laughs> what advice can you offer to scientists just starting out? You know, it strikes me that nothing about science is fast. Very little about science is easy. You know, it can take decades to make key discoveries. And so, um, you know, and then you have the interplay of sort of 
funding challenges and the pace of innovation, all these things that are sort of colliding in the world of science. So what's your advice to somebody who's thinking about a career just starting out and wondering if they should stick with it? Uh, my key piece of advice is persistence. Uh, you will uh, get knocked around a little bit by uh, reviewers of, of uh, papers, reviewers of grants. Uh, you'll feel uneasy when you start teaching. Um, just keep at it. All right. It, uh, it, it can be disconcerting, but it will get easier and uh, persistence helps a lot. Um, obviously, everybody's got to try to pick as interesting a problem as possible. And, and something that uh, many people don't pay a lot of attention to is um, writing well. Um, important I, even for it's, scientists? It's extraordinarily important. So imagine you're a reviewer of grants at the NIH, all right? So we all get to do this. And uh, traditionally, you'd show up at a panel. And in advance of that panel, you will have been sent, let's say, a dozen grant applications, uh, which are now um, uh, shorter than they used to be, but, but still fairly substantial uh, in, in detail. And, and so you've got this pile of grants that you had to review in the weeks before you showed up. And um, whether or not you're going to admit it, the grants that are easier to read, the grants that, are, that get their message across more clearly, uh, are often those which you will then review more favorably. So being a, a, a good writer is important there. It's really um, important when you write papers. And, and, and I say this because I've seen the counterexample. I've seen stuff that's so hard to read that uh, it, it, it's impossible to get through. Yeah. And so people who might even have an important message or a good idea don't get it out. It's lost in, yeah. in the translation. So what about yourself? What's still left for you to accomplish? Um, it, <laughs> My motto is hit the wall at 100 miles an hour. <laughs> uh, just, just keep going. It's, I, I don't have real goals in, in the sense of, okay, I'll be really happy if X happens. Uh, uh, my, my uncle used to say, uh, after he understood what I did, he said, well, I get it. You're learning more and more about less and less. <laughs> and, 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 and what he meant was that as we try to understand uh, regulatory mechanisms in genetics, uh, we, we started out uh, trying to define molecules that were important. And then you try to understand interactions between molecules. And now the, the understanding is starting to approach the, the atomic level. You know, how do these molecules touch each other at specific places and how does that cause the biochemical change that you see. And so we're always uh, digging deeper. Uh, and there's always something unusual that you don't understand. So your um, uncle's uh, thought was pretty apt. Yes, exactly. Thank you so much for making time to talk to us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
You've been listening to a conversation with Alan Jacobson, PhD. He's a professor and chair of the Department of Microbiology and Physiological Systems at UMass Medical School. He's one of more than 40 founding faculty members in the new Lee Weibo Institute for Rare Diseases Research and also a member of the newly elected American Academy of Arts and Sciences class of 2018. Thank you for listening. I'm Jennifer Berryman, Vice Chancellor for Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Thank you for listening to Voices of UMass Med, a podcast produced by the Office of Communications at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Visit our website at umassmed.edu news where you can find all of our podcasts. And follow us on Facebook at UMass Med, on LinkedIn at University of Massachusetts Medical School, and on Twitter at UMass Medical. Mm-hmm.